Welcome to the podcast of Mosaic Church, celebrating diversity within community. First Corinthians, chapter 8, the entire thing. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a... Well, let me, let me, let me start by praying. Okay, because this is, let me start by praying. God, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to gather, that we have the opportunity to connect with each other, even from a distance, that we have the opportunity to learn from your word and from your scripture, that your Holy Spirit convicts each of our hearts individually. And God, we are thankful for that, that you have a personal relationship with you. We do not go through an intermediary priest, but we can come straight to you, and we're thankful for that. So in light of that, God, this morning, would you convict our hearts in the ways that are appropriate? Would you illuminate your word to us and speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. So there are a number of things that this can relate to with us uh, the the very least of which is food sacrificed to idols. That is not something that we are necessarily dealing with in our culture and our society in 2021 uh, that I know of. Certainly not widespread, if, if at all. But let's talk a bit about what that is, uh, because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell us, I'm going to name some things, and you can probably think of some things in your own brain that can fit into this category, right? Uh I mean, just most recently, right, mask wearing has become one of those issues. Um, 
kind of historically speaking, or maybe maybe a recent history, uh, or or a less distant history is alcohol, right? That's a big one. Certain foods, uh, certain TV shows or movies, or goodness, what else? Games. I remember when I was a kid, Dungeons and Dragons was a big deal, and so that was like you know the devil's going to get into you if you do that, and um, and, and and we're going to talk about that this particular subject, and you can put any of those one things in that. Okay, so I'm not going to do this. Through this time that we open up the scripture, I'm not going to go through it individually. So we're just going to name some of those off the bat. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing arguments uh, against smoking. I mean, one of the most stark memories that I have was the first. uh, So I grew up in a Pentecostal setting, which meant everything was bad. Okay, there was nothing that was good. No dancing, no makeup. Uh, I mean, I was a little bit less on that side of it, but my mom could not go to her prom and had to wear long skirts and the whole deal. And um, But there were certain things I wasn't allowed to do as a kid, for sure. There were video games I couldn't play and different things and TV shows I couldn't watch and, and, and all that. Um, but I, but So everything was off limits, right? Uh, drinking, uh, smoking, drugs, the whole thing. It was just all, no, no matter whether it was legal or not, it was all off limits. So... The first time that I interviewed for a job at a church, it was in Forest City, North Carolina. I cannot remember the name of the church, but it was a it was a Baptist church. And I remember pulling up to the parking lot, and it was like jam full, right? So I'd met with the pastor. I'd met with some people. I had actually gone on a Wednesday night when it was just a student ministry because that was what they were talking to me for. And, I, and they invited me to come and kind of check out things on a Sunday. So I pull up to this little kind of country church. I mean, the parking lot is so packed that they have like uh, deacons or elders or whatever their leadership position was, or maybe it was just a, a person in the congregation. I don't know who it was, but they had people directing traffic. And the guy directing traffic had a cigarette in his hand. He's waving me in, right? And I see the, a, a group of guys that I had already met and know to be like elders or deacons. deacons. I'm not sure the leadership structure there or how they had it set up or the names they called them. But they're over there, and two or three of them are smoking in a huddle. And I'm just like, what in the world? Because as a Pentecostal kid, like it was all off limits. I remember seeing a kid from the youth group come down and bum a cigarette from one of the elders, and I was just, my mind was blown, right? Fast forward, but there was absolutely, in that culture, there was absolutely no, no, no drinking. I mean, that was okay, and so there was arguments for why this is okay, and I never got into that, but I'm sure they had theologies around that that kind of helped them support that. That was different from what I grew up with. Then I meet a buddy of mine. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and a lot of my friends are from the West Coast. They were all in music, and they had come from the West Coast. And Drinking to them was no big deal at all. Like, it wasn't, they weren't alcoholics. It wasn't a big, it was no big deal. But smoking was a huge, like, they couldn't, and it was just so funny for me to see, like, the differences in that, how everybody does it. And we know that to be true. We all know that to be true. And so we can put whatever issue into this story that we want, into this teaching that Paul gives us that we want. And we're not going to do that this morning specifically, but you put it all, all in there. But let me, let's talk a little bit about what happened. So in this day and age, there were a couple things that were going on. There were, there were a lot of gods that the Romans worshipped. And what also was influence, influential into the Roman culture was also the Greek culture, which had their own set of gods. They were different. But they were real similar. And we can go back through the mythologies and kind of see those things, right? Uh, the other thing that was happening was there was a lot of um, 
leadership worship. That's not the name of it, but emperor worship. So they would, they would worship the emperor, whoever that was, whether it was Caesar or Nero or whoever the, Caesar, whoever the leader was of Rome, they would begin to erect temples to this person and to their family members. It wasn't just that person, it was that family member. They begin to, to worship that, that person. So what it be, oftentimes what happened the restaurants of the day really were the temples because the people would take a goat. It wasn't very, uh, it wasn't an, an agricultural community as much anymore. They began to be civilized and kind of build. So they would go to the market and buy a goat. There wasn't so much herders. There were, it certainly happened, but less, you know, I'm in, I'm in Exodus right now. Well, I just finished Exodus today and everybody was, right? That, the, that was the only thing in the community. You had some people who, who had the, they all kind of traded and bartered and did that. And we had kind of gotten to a society where there was money involved and not everybody had these things like animals and sheep and goats and all this. So they would go buy whatever it was and they would take it to the temple, offer it as a sacrifice to whatever God that temple was and engage in whatever celebration that was. A family would do this. So a family unit would go and they would take this, whatever it was, a bull or goat or sheep or whatever it was, take it, sacrifice it, and then they would grill the meat, they would barbecue the meat, and then they would share in a meal. And it was oftentimes, if you've ever slaughtered a cow, which I have not, but I have my father-in-law is a cattle farmer, and Natalie just told me yesterday we got to clean out the freezer because they're killing a cow next month, and one cow will feed a family for more than a year. I mean, usually a family can, a couple families can split a whole one. And, and so that's what was going on. They would have so much meat. So more people would come to the temple and they would eat this meat that had been earlier been a sacrifice to this God. And then a lot of times there was more than what could feed the people who came, not only the family, but the other people who came. And so they would sell the meat to the market so a lot of times in this community, if you had meat, you bought it at a market. And a lot of times that meat that was at a market had been sacrificed to an idol. It was the reason for the issue, right? And what would happen at these sacrifices was they would not only, uh, if you're familiar at all with the Catholic idea of, and the name just, just went out of my brain. So somebody's probably yelling it at your computer screen right now. But it's the idea that substantiation, transubstantiation, that Christ is in the communion, right? If you're familiar with that idea, that was not unique to Roman Catholicism. That was very much what they believed. They believed that as they consumed the meat, that they were actually consuming part of that god or a goddess. And then drink became involved, and they would get drunk, and then there were temple prostitutes, often younger than 18, who would be there for their pleasure if they were willing to pay more money to that God. And there were people who lived their entire life like this. And now they've come to the truth of who God is, who the God is, and they've transformed their life. But all their life, that meat that they ate was tied to that. And so that's the whole reason for this issue. And so we're going to flesh this out a bit. But we got to set the history. we got to know what's going on because we can read that and just kind of put our own little 
thing on it and not really quite understand. So this is what's happening. There are people who their entire life have been deeply into this really dark thing, and now they've been shown the light, and they've left it. And to be given even a taste of that could drag them right back to where they were. And so Paul begins by saying, now, about food sacrifice to idols. we got to talk about it. You're a Gentile community that had their, your life transformed, and that's the only really kind of meat you got in town. We know that we all possess knowledge. We have this knowledge. And what is that knowledge? Well, first, he puts a little interjection. We're going to come back to that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It wasn't a mistake that we sang Love Lifted Me earlier today because as I read that this week, that just went through my head. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So he kind of sets this thing up. And then he says this. So then about eating food, sacrificed idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. That goes back. If you read Leviticus, there was this scripture that Moses wrote out, right? And it began to be a mantra for the entire Israelite community. As they worshiped God, this mantra was, there is no God but one. So love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. And that was their mantra. There is no God but one. Why would they do that? We talked about this, but it's been a couple years. You may not remember. There is no God but one. That was a transformative statement because... The communities, the, ag- the agrarian communities at that time had many gods. The god of the forest and the god of the river and the god of the rain and the god of fertility and the god of, of, of the harvest and all these gods. And their idea was if we sacrifice and appease this god, that he will let whatever it is, he or she will let whatever it is that we need occur. So if a mother was not fertile and having trouble producing babies, they would sacrifice to the God of fertility. If they needed rain, they would sacrifice to the God of the air. If they needed a great harvest, they would sacrifice that. And so it was constantly all these different gods who controlled everything. And then Israel comes in and says, there is no God but one. That was transformed. He created all of this. Because they're saying that you don't have to sacrifice to all these gods. There's only one God. He created all this. That's the only God we're sacrificing to. That was, that started wars. <laughs> you would think people would hear that and be like, oh, that's nice. I want that. I'm going to go on that. But no. I mean, think of it. We don't, think of the way that we get puffed up on what we believe. And if anybody comes in and teaches something different, man, we, we lose it, Right? We have all kinds of social issues that you can go out and see in the news, social media, or just talking to your neighbor that believe different than us. And we see the Christian community bow their back and rise up and say, well, that's, that ain't right. That's not what, what I believe. And that was what was happening then. <laughs> Israel's coming in with this really great story. There is no God but one. So love him with all your heart, soul, and might. And they're saying, what are you talking about? I'm not willing to risk it because I may not 
be fertile. I may not have a good crop. We may not have rain. Like, I'm not willing to risk that. And so that, that was what Israel had. And, and Paul brings it up and says, you remember this thing that we say all the time. There is no God but one. So if there's only one God, who are they sacrificing? Nobody. This made-up thing. It's nothing better than Aaron and the Israelite community when they melted down their earrings and made a calf. It did nothing. The God of all the universe is up on a mountain with fire and thunder and lightning. (laughs) And they say, hey, Aaron, we think Moses is dead up there with all that going on. We need to sacrifice and worship something, so make us something. And you're seeing all this stuff. It's powerful. And you want to make a golden calf that just sits there. That's a bit of what Paul was getting at. It's like, we know this is nothing. We have this knowledge that they're not sacrificing anything. They're wasting their time. They're making a show of it. It's just meat. There's nothing sacred about it. And so we have this knowledge. But when we take that knowledge and say, well, man, meat is good. Barbecued meat is real good. And I'm going to engage in that because it's good and it's nothing at all. So why would I, why would I, why would I ever think of denying myself of something really tasty because of some old ritual. It's nothing. And Paul's saying, yeah, we have that knowledge. We have it. And we don't have to do it because we know they didn't sacrifice to anything. That thing's not real. There is only one God. So, so that's why Paul, right there at the beginning, that thing was called the Shema, right? Like that's what it's called, that, that phrase, there is no God but one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. That was Israel's Shema. That was what they said all the time. And Paul's bringing it back to their memory and said, you know that. You know that to be true. They didn't do anything. But you living on that knowledge could destroy somebody. But that brings up all kinds of stuff for us, right? Because here's what I used to think. I've heard it been said, and you may be thinking this now yourself. But what about those people who just can't be satisfied? They're going to be offended at anything. What, am I just not supposed to live my life because they're going to be offended at something? Take something the wrong way? Do something? One of the, one of the commentaries uh, that I was reading this week, kind of brings this out, and they ask this question, does this then require refraining from any behavior or position that is disapproved because of the sometimes narrow-minded consciences, consciences and outlooks of the weaker minority in the congregation? That would make prophetic witness on the part of individuals or congregations nearly impossible. If we bowed down to every time someone was offended in our congregation, it would make the prophetic witness of Christ nearly impossible. However, that's not what Paul intends, as he illustrates in Corinthians 10. So let's flip over to Corinthians 10, 29 and 30. So and if, you're, and if you're curious, like I would read 8, 9, and 10, like all that, like Paul, 
all that is kind of really the same argument. Paul is building the whole thing out. It's like three chapters to get to. We're not going to go through three chapters today, but we will pick up a little bit more next week. But it's, you know, it's kind of lengthy. So if you want to read all three chapters, that's great. Um, but 29 and 30 specifically say this. I am referring to other, the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's consciousness? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether I, and we'll read 31 too. So whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do it all for the glory of God. However, in verse 32, he puts a caveat. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. And then he and then he goes into saying, "Hey, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ." We we actually spent a bit of time this morning as worshiping, discussing some of this, not framed in this direction, kind of where we're coming from a different way. But that idea came up is the fact that. The example to follow was the example of Christ. And what did Christ do? Well, he did a lot of things. That was a kind of a loaded question. But one of the things that Christ did specifically when it came to issues like this is he did not shy away from them, A. And B, he, he encouraged and engaged that, that thing, right? He didn't shy away from going into... Levi's house, the tax collector, or uh, what's the little shortcut up in the tree? Uh, Zacchaeus. He didn't. He didn't shy away from going to Zacchaeus's house. He did it. That was frowned upon by his community. That offended some. But Christ did it. He was following, kind of the convict him in there. Spirit, following his father, who was prompting him in there, and as a result. Those guys' lives were changed, and other people's lives have been changed through those stories. So it's not, Paul is not calling us to just do whatever anybody else wants us to do. What Paul is calling us to do is to do what he did, which is follow what Christ wanted him to do. And Paul said, if, if for the sake of someone's salvation, I have to be a vegetarian the rest of my life, I will do it. But we don't get the sense that Paul did that. Especially if you read chapter 10 and then you get down to the end. He's like, why am I being, I thank God for this. Why am I being chastised for it? It's almost as if Paul's talking to two separate groups of people. And maybe there were believers that just had such a narrow mindset that they could not get outside of it. Not the weaker Christian because they didn't know anything more. They were going to grow in knowledge and understanding, but they weren't quite there yet. So Paul said, I don't want to lead them astray, but I'm also not going to be constrained to the person who thinks everything under the sun is wrong because they're scared, because they're not following the Spirit. Paul wants his Corinthian friends and all of us to know that being certain of what is right and wrong, appropriate or inappropriate, is not sufficient, even if one's position is correct. Love is greater than knowledge. This is particularly true with the weaker ones among us. Paul's not concerned with saying, hey, this is true and right, and so I'm going to stand on this to beat you down with it. 
Paul's saying love is going to drive that. How we love each other through that. You never get the sense that Jesus was unloving. Heather brought this out to us this morning. You never get the sense that Jesus was unloving towards anybody, even though he kind of called out some people, right? He called out the Pharisees quite a bit. It was in this box, and it had to fit in there, and if it didn't, it wasn't Christ. That's why why Jesus was killed. But even when Jesus was chastising the Pharisees, you get the sense he was doing that because he loved them and wanted them to see the truth. And that's kind of the tension that we find ourselves in. And so how do we deal with that? the heart of all this is whether the church, whether we, view Christ as the one who teaches us to build fortresses to protect Christianity in the Christian community or as one who himself was the bridge to neighbors of other faiths and traditions. How else would anyone come to faith in Christ? How else would the Gentiles even be in the position? Why else would Paul be in the position to write Corinthians? Unless God in his love said we're we're building bridges to these folks. We're not asking them to come in and follow everything that the Jewish community has followed. Peter and Paul argued about that, right? there There was a whole council in Jerusalem that dealt with this issue. And where did they eventually come down to? Well, it's interesting that I'm bringing that up when we're talking about this because they they did talk about not eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and give to the poor but we're not going to make them get circumcised and do all the things that we're doing. Because Christ is presenting himself to the Gentiles just as he presented himself to us. And so we're not going to create more barriers to Christ through that. Because we don't think that uncircumcision is sin, right? Paul didn't say, hey, it's cool to continue to be a temple prostitute after you found Christ. So there was certainly sin that was called out. But that sin was never called out to the unbeliever, right? We don't ever see that. We see it constantly being called out to the the believer. As I read this this week, Paul's principal concern is to guard the integrity of the church and to do such such in a way that weaker members will be protected from the destructive temptations that surround us in the culture, which would lure them away from faith in Christ. And that is what Paul was dealing with. And the final analysis is about loyalty to Christ himself, which has been expressed by sometimes costly sensitivity towards weaker Weaker fellow Christians. Knowledge without love puffs up, but love builds up. Can you imagine being a non-believer? Coming into a community, and maybe you did this, and if you did this and you remained a Christian, then get on your knees right now and thank God for his mercy and grace. Because can you imagine walking into a, to a community, Christian community as a non-believer, And having the people before you even agree with them say, well, if you're going to be here, you have to follow our our ways and do our things. And they were just really rigid. 
That's if you're going to believe discipleship, you know, that comes with after that transformation's happened, you now believe, okay, now if you're going to believe this, you're following a different way. You're doing things different. Crisis transforms you. But before that, you're a non-believer. I expect you to be doing those things. I don't expect you to be following Christ when you don't even know Christ. And that is the tension that we constantly find ourselves in. It's waking up daily, serving a God who calls us to be perfect just as he is perfect. He calls us to holiness. And so that is our responsibility to live into that. It's not our responsibility to force that on people who don't yet know Christ. However, it, we do see that it is our responsibility to call that out when we see maybe unholiness in the community of believers, but always with love, because love builds up. I think one of the most important things, and it's caused me, if I'm being honest, it's caused me grief as a, as a Christian leader. Whether I was leading the entire church or whether I was just leading a section of the church, it's caused me grief because I am strongly convicted that it is not my responsibility to give people a list of do's and don'ts. And quite honestly, that's what people want. They're like, just tell me what to do. Tell me how much to give. It's why we don't talk about giving a lot. It's why I don't, let me put it that way. I talk about giving in the sense that God calls us to give, but you'll never once hear me say, this is how much you got to give. Because <laughs> in the Old Testament, they talk about the tenth, right? The tithe. In the New Testament, who does Jesus build up? The lady who gave everything she had. And you start preaching that message in the church, they'll run you off quick. But I think it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict someone how much they should give. We know we should pray, but you're never going to. I'm encouraging you to pray with me <laughs> and read Scripture with me, but I'm never going to tell somebody, here's what you have to read, here's how much you have to read, here's when you have to pray. I, I knew a pastor who would really beat people over the head if they didn't get up early in the morning and pray. When I was younger, before I had kids, I was not an early morning person. And I was like, so I'm not as good a Christian as you? And that was the, it, I would never do that. But people sometimes come to church and say, just give me the five things I got to do. Like, I want the easy way out. Give me the five things I got to do to be a believer, to be saved, to make it to heaven. And the truth is, you're in a relationship. We are in a relationship with a loving God. And for those of you, you all who have been in relationships, and I think that's everybody, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a dating relationship, there is no five keys to friendship with Friar. <laughs> I can go to Natalie right now. What's the five keys to be the perfect husband for you for the rest of my life? There ain't five keys. There's like 50, and they change every day. I mean, that's just how it goes. That's how it is for all of us. That's not, that's not in a marriage. Like, we're different. It's, a, it's right. a fluid thing. And God is constant, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he also interacts with us in unique and different ways as we grow and mature. And so it's not a five things to do to make it into heaven. It is following the, whole, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of Christ daily in discipleship. And that's not easy to do. And that's what Paul's dealing with with the 
Corinthian church. He's like, I could tell you not to eat meat. But that's not the end of the story. It's a much more dynamic thing than that. I strongly believe that's why in Philippians, when he's writing to the, to the church in Philippi, he says, you have to work out your faith with fear and trembling because it's a holy thing. And not put that on other people just because God has put it on you. God gives us freedom. Unbelievable freedom. So much freedom that all that stuff we read in the Old Testament, and Christ said, I've come to fulfill the law. Everything I've made is holy. There's nothing I've made that's not holy. But yeah, sometimes the Holy Spirit's convicting us, saying, hey, I don't want you to do this, that, or the other because of whatever it is. Even though in and of itself, it's not. <laughs> we have this knowledge that there's that God created it all, and he's made it all holy. But yet God may say, hey, for a time or for the rest of your life, I want you to be vegetarian because it's messing up these people in your church. And Paul said, I'm willing to do that if that's what it takes. If that's what God calls me to do. My heart is so drawn to see them grow in maturity and come to faith in Christ and then grow that I'm willing to give that up for the rest of my life. And that is the posture that we need in the church today. That's not to say here's the five things we can and can't do for the rest of our life. It's we need that posture. The posture to say I am because to do something different than I want to do because of someone else. And where did Paul get that? He got it from Jesus. Jesus, who not only said it in saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up a cross, an instrument of torture and capital punishment daily and follow me. And then he got it from the actions of Christ, who did just that, who went to a cross and sacrificed himself And we know that's not necessarily what he wanted to do. How do we know that? Because in the garden he prayed, God, if there is another way, Father, if there is another way, take this from me because I don't want to go through it. Sometimes we have this holy kind of thing of Jesus where he just kind of gracefully like just hovered up the mountain and got up there and it was painful and he didn't want to do it. But like Paul, Jesus will say, if this is what it takes then I'll do it. And that's the posture that we need as believers. And that's the posture we need as a church. We may say, I don't want to make this change as a church. I don't want to make this change as a person. And God may be saying, I don't care what you want. You are already in the community of Christ. I want others to hear it. I'll close with this one kind of quote that I read in one of the commentaries because I'm afraid if I keep going, I'll just keep going. (laughs) So what he, being Paul, insisted earlier in the chapter, chapter being 13, was that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And it's love that he's appealing to now as he talks about uh, the fact of not eating. It was part of the foundation of his argument. You may say, You may, he says, have the right to eat meat offered to idols 
He may even be referring to the right that Roman citizens in Corinth had to attend great imperial festivals. But you must be careful in case this right of yours leads you to do things which will lure the weak brother or sister back into their old life. That's where we kind of find ourselves. Are we willing to live our lives for someone else and not for ourselves? That is the heart of the gospel. That is all that we're called to do. It's to follow Christ down a path away from our own wants and desires into what he wants for us. God, we thank you that you have not only called us to this, but have shown us this, that you did not leave, lead us to this hard text this morning, a text of self-denial. And selflessness. You haven't led us here without showing us what it was like, without modeling it for us, without leading us in that direction by the way that you lived your life when you were here on earth. And so we're thankful that we have that example. And the great thing about that example is that we know the end result. The end result is you conquered death, so we have nothing to fear in doing this. So God, would you give us boldness to live an unselfish life without regard for what other folks who claim to know you would think of us by doing what you called us to do. But God, would you give us a strong conviction through your spirit of what you are calling us to do. Help us to be faithful and true to that call. And God, when we fail that, given thankful that we get to come to you with repentant hearts and, and be forgiven. God, our prayer is that every day we wake up, we fail a little less than we did the day before. Through your Holy Spirit, would you give us encouragement every day to do the right thing, even when, even on days when we know we blew it the day before. God, we love you. We thank you for all that is in our community of faith. God, we pray that you would keep your hand on, on all of us. Continue to keep us safe. God, thank you so much that this virus has not affected Mosaic Church as, as much as it has other places. God, we don't take that for granted. God, we're thankful that even though we're not as grand as some other places, God, you have called us and you have a purpose for us that you have given us influence. May we see that and be obedient to that. God, we love you for modeling for us what we need to do, would you give us boldness to do it? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us at www.mosaiceasley.org.